0: Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 409th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the most talented and exciting actors in the business. He's a Guatemalan-born Juilliard graduate who blew away industry insiders with his first leading screen role eight years ago as the title character in the Coen Brothers film Inside Lewin Davis. And then two years after that, shot to international superstardom as resistance flyboy Poe Dameron in J.J. Abrams' Star Wars The Force Awakens, the first of three installments of the Star Wars franchise in which he has appeared. He has also won raves from critics and audiences alike with his work on the stage, on the small screen in the 2015 limited series Show Me a Hero, for which he won a Golden Globe, and on the big screen in projects such as Nicholas Winning Ruffin's Drive in 2011, J.C. Chandor's A Most Violent Year in 2014, and Alex Garland's Ex Machina in 2015. This year, however, he is having a year unlike any other, with a standout turn as the lead in Paul Schrader's drama The Card Counter, as a key supporting player in Denis Villeneuve's fantasy epic Dune, and as one half of Hagai Levy's two-hander, five-part HBO limited series, Scenes from a Marriage. A New York Times critic's pick less than a year ago as, quote, one of the 25 greatest actors of the 21st century so far, close quote, Oscar Isaac. Over the course of our conversation, the 42-year-old and I discussed his roots in the theater, but lifelong desire to act on screen, how Inside Lewin Davis came about and changed the entire trajectory of his career, how he feels about big studio franchise movies, like the installments of the Star Wars and X-Men series in which he has appeared, versus Art House Fair, in which he has done his most distinguished work, plus much more. And so, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Oscar, thank you so much for doing the podcast. Great to have you. And um, On this one, we really do go back to the very beginning. If you wouldn't mind sharing for our listeners, Uh, where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living? I was born in Guatemala
1: and raised in South Florida. And um, my mom took care of us and my dad is a doctor.
0: Yeah. You know, I've tried to read everything I could find to uh, ask you some informed questions. I was interested to learn that it was a pretty, I guess, pretty religious upbringing. You were a pretty straight edge kid, but while you weren't drinking or doing drugs or, or stuff like that, you did you did rebel in your own ways, right? It sounds like. Yeah. Yeah.
1: No. Definitely. I. Um, I think. Yeah, it was like in bands. Uh you know that was a that was a way to kind of, you know, express some some rage, I guess. Uh uh and then younger, you know, I just was mischievous and would get into a lot of trouble and yeah, yeah, I was a uh, I was a pretty disruptive kid in class.
0: <laughs> I I read about there was some some teacher put sort of blockaded your desk, is that? <laughs>
1: That's right. Yeah. She put like, a, I think it was like third or fourth grade. Uh, they put like the car, the, you know, the windshield blinders like around my yeah, desk yeah. and put me in the back, which is perfect because it was like a perfect stage to do like puppet shows in the back. And, Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> was that or, or some other moment that you remember, like sort of just the beginning of an interest in acting? I mean, can you pinpoint where that traces back to?
1: Well, you know, my my dad had a video camera. And so he, and he made uh, like little films with his brothers when he was younger on an eight millimeter and he would like edit them together and even make soundtracks to them and all that. So he, he kind of had that bug and he loved, loved and loves movies. So I think it was a mixture of him bringing home lots of different movies to watch and then having a video camera and then he made movies with us and then I would grab his camera and start making my own little movies with my own toys and then at school, uh, started doing a like school plays. And I found that especially as like my parents divorced and it was a really turbulent time. That was like a great escape for me to just like do these plays and pretend to be somebody else.
0: Mm -hmm. And It's interesting to try to figure out when it actually struck you as this is something I might be able to do with my life, because it seems like when you after high school, it wasn't like immediately off to Juilliard. There was a period of some other stuff in between. Right.
1: Yeah. I mean, in in high school, I was still into it, but then I got into music a lot more. And uh, it was just, uh, I really fell in love with it and sort of playing a lot and playing for crowds. And um, I I just, I really liked that a lot. So I thought maybe that was some way I was going to go. At the same time, I kept making movies. So as far as school, I thought maybe I'd go to film school for directing. And then once I graduated high school, I started uh, auditioning for professional plays in Miami. and, And I got a few of those. I did like four or five of them. And, and then I auditioned for a movie down there, and I, I got a speaking part, and I, I did a movie in 2000. And then the next year, I went up to, to do a play in New York, and that's when I passed by Juilliard, and I decided to, kind of on a whim,
0: to audition. And do you remember what you auditioned with?
1: Yeah, I do. I, I did a Hotspur from Henry V uh, as the classical, and then uh, for my contemporary, I did um, a piece from a Brian Friel play called Dancing at Lunissa.
0: And did you feel coming out of that audition, you thought nailed it or, or were you uh, a little worried?
1: No, I, I, I knew that I'd kind of nailed it in the, in the audition because uh, it was for the head of the drama school at the time, it was Michael Kahn and uh, the head of voice at the time, Ralph Zito. And basically Michael was like, okay, you know, he gave me some notes for, the Hotspur one in particular, and then said, okay, you know, basically like, you know, go for it more, get a little more angry. And he said, okay, when you come back, do it just like that. So I, I didn't have to wait to see if my name came back. He basically told me I was getting a call back. And so, um, and I remember I stayed at one of my castmates from the play, Yul Vasquez, who was like an amazing actor. I stayed with him and Linda, uh, his partner, and they, they helped me a bunch. And, and um, you know, it was just such a great, exciting time. And then I came back and I did the monologue for the whole faculty. And uh, I ended up like not doing his note. And then he <laughs> kind of was just, he was just quiet for a second. And he said, what happened to what we talked about? <laughs> and then I, and I said, well, you know, I, I understand why you said that, but I just feel like he wouldn't talk that way to the King, you know, I mean, it's, it's still the King, you know, like, you're not going to just yell at him. And then he mm-hmm. said, yeah, but what you did was boring. And no. I said, I said, okay, okay. He's like, you know, you came all the way up from Miami. Why don't you just go for it? And I was like, okay, all right. Uh, I actually, I forgot. So after I finished, he said, they said, thank you. And I left. And then they came out and said, Hey, he wants to see you again. And that's when I came back in. And this is like all the faculties on these, in these bleachers and he was just quiet. And that's when he said, why didn't you do the note? You know?
0: <laughs> and this is with your admission on the line, right? Yeah. I yeah. Mean, yeah. This is on
1: the line. Yeah. And I'm arguing about like <laughs> the note, you know? <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, uh, and so then I was like, okay. And so then I just like went for it and he's like, now how did that feel? And I was like, that, it felt good. And I, I, I had to really bite my tongue to be like, but I still don't think he would talk that way. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but he just wanted to see if I could, if I could do it, you know? And, um, and then, uh, shortly after that, then, you know, you, you wait around and then you go up for one more interview with just him and, and the head of the acting department at the time, which was John Sticks. who's was like the famous, famous acting teacher, like taught Dustin Hoffman and amazing guy. And, um, he was already like well into his late seventies, early eighties at the time yeah, it was just like this dark room in his office where we just talked for a little bit. And, uh, and then I, I had a really good feeling that it was going to happen. So, so yeah, and then that really changed
0: the trajectory for me. Absolutely. Uh, now was it around that time, uh, that Oscar Isaac Hernandez Estrada becomes just Oscar Isaac or what was, what was the consideration around that?
1: Well, actually funny enough, um, at school, I, was, I, I just stayed Oscar Hernandez. Uh, before I went to school, when I was doing uh, the plays and the movies in Miami, I was Oscar Isaac uh, because there was tons of Oscar Hernandez'es down there already. Um, I believe there was one there was one already in SaG. and um, and so it was just wanting to differentiate my you know like my dad's named Oscar Hernandez. My grandfather's named Oscar Hernandez. Um, I had friends named Oscar Hernandez. It's basically John Smith. You know I, I actually still get right. stopped. Uh, every I, I get stopped almost every time I come in from internationally because the name Oscar Hernandez is is like a John Smith uh, for you know Latinos and and right. uh, it, it it connects with like five other you know felons that are on the loose So they're like <laughs> I always have to go to the back room and be like I promise can you just Google me you know? <laughs> uh, <laughs> so yeah so it became you know and, and look and and also. Yeah, uh, um, you know to try to open it up so that I just wasn't typecast as like, you know, the gangster or that and and luckily things have opened up a lot more and you know in retrospect sometimes I'm like, yeah, well, you know, Oscar Isaac Hernandez, I, got, I you know, I could always, I remember Andy Garcia at one point he was like, you should change your name back to Hernandez. You know, it's like to <laughs> represent and I'm like, no, I get it. I, I and I tell everyone that I can, you know, I am a Latino, I'm a proud Latino. Um yes. but uh but yeah, I, you know, it was a, it was a bit of a different time and you know, there was also something about like that Bob Dylan-esque kind of reinvention thing that I was, I liked, you know, I'm, I'm an every man from everywhere. Um, exactly. there's like something poetic about that, that I liked.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So at Juilliard, I guess that's the, the, you know, where it sounds like your, your love of Shakespeare really took off and in your first year. And then I get the interesting thing though, I read, you were saying that in your second year, which is, I guess when they kind of winnow the field somewhat. You felt like you were on the line. Like what, what was that about?
1: Yeah, I was on the line. I, um, I got, uh, so yeah, I don't think they don't do it anymore. Um, but at the time they, they would have cuts, uh, in your second year. And so the, the paper would go up on the board that would, um, have the names that of the people that were going on, um, probation. Yeah. So, and then you'd have to go up and talk to the, you know, in that same dark office, but with like the fat the heads of, you know, voice speech, uh, movement and, and Michael Kahn. And so the paper goes up and I see it there. I see my name there. And I, and I was so pissed. I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> no way do I deserve to be on this list? Come on. You know? And, and so I, I, I couldn't believe it. I was just, I just was, you know, it was this righteous indignation that I had. And, uh, and so I went up there and I sat down and like, you know, they were all sitting in a circle. And I said, I don't know why I'm up here, guys. I, I like, you know, I'm trying, I'm doing my best. And then and then Michael Kahn said, well, look, first of all, we're not putting you on probation. I brought you up here because half of the faculty thinks you should be on probation and half the faculty thinks you should not. And it turned out that the half that thought that I shouldn't be was the whole, the technical side, like voice and a speech and movement. They're like, no, we see that you're really putting in the time the acting department felt that I should be <laughs> on probation, <laughs> right? Because they felt that I wasn't, I wasn't um, trying hard enough. You know, like I, I remember I had done a scene from *Glengarry Gary, Glenn Ross, and we did it and it didn't really work really well. It was like, it, it just flopped. And, and then she, you know, the, our acting teacher, great acting teacher, Becky Guy gave, gave me a bunch of notes. And then I went back and I was like, you know what, let me, I'm going to try a different scene. And then, uh, and then, so she brought that up. She said like, you know, you didn't do the notes. You just brought in a different scene. I was like, I just didn't think I was right for the part. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and then, uh, and then like, I remember John Sticks was like, you know, we had done as you like it, which was, you know, and he's like, you were really bad in that. And I was like, yes, I, I, I was bad in that. I said, I was bad in that, but in my defense, everybody was pretty bad in that one, you know? <laughs> and so, uh, so anyway, it was just like, it was kind of to light my fire to, to just like you know, take it a little more seriously, put myself out on the line more, you know, not be safe, not just, you know, be afraid to make, do things perfectly, but like fail a little bit more in a, you know, in a, in a, in a just much more mindful way, you know? And so it was, it was helpful because it did, it did make me work harder.
0: Now, the years you were there, I believe 2001 through 2005, does that sound right? Right. So you're in New York at, I guess, Nine Eleven, right? Uh, I was
1: I was there for a month when that happened. Yeah, I had just wow. arrived in the city.
0: Another thing, which I hope you won't mind me bringing up, but because I, I I'm sure it's a it doesn't get easier with time. But I mean, I read uh, again in the prep for this that there was a terrible thing that happened to a person in your. These are small classes. How many people were in your class at Juilliard?
1: When um when I know what you're talking about here that, that we were I yeah. think at that point sixteen people. Uh, in okay. Our class. S- yeah. Yeah. Sarah, Sarah Fox. Yeah. She, uh, yeah. she had actually just left the drama program and we lived down the street from each other and she's just incredible and beautiful uh, human being. And yeah, got, got murdered jogging in Inwood Park. Yeah.
0: And it seems like as, as of course it would if a friend of anyone's, you know, had such an unexpected, tragic, death. It really, it seems like it affected you in, in a pretty profound way. You've said like, in, in some ways, I guess that's where you permitted yourself after that to, all right, I, you can have a drink or you can let loose a little you know, live a little bit because life is short. That's
1: true. Yeah. That was the first time that
0: I really drank
1: after that. Yeah. I mean, it was less about life is short. I think I was just kind of depressed and sad mm-hmm. and, you know, mm-hmm. I just, you know, whatever kind of convictions of, of, you know, I, I, at that point I wasn't religious anymore. I mean, I, 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 stopped being religious around 15 or 16. I think for me, it was more of just like a badge of, of individuality and independence, you know, maybe even some weird righteous moral high ground that I would have. And, uh, and then at that point I just, I kind of let that go for a number of reasons. And, and, uh, but yeah, I remember sitting at a bar up in, in wood and I think talking to a reporter and having like a drink about it. Cause it was
0: just, mm-hmm. it was a lot. It was a lot terrible, yeah. yeah. So, as you're getting ready to come out of Juilliard, are you thinking? Because I, I don't believe. Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't, I don't believe they offer screen acting instruction. It's pretty much stage, right?
1: No, that we have a. I mean, yes, you're right. We had a um, on-camera class that okay, we had for okay. like half a semester, our fourth year, which is a bit of a joke at the time, you know. <laughs> I remember our our our, our teacher, he, and he's like an experimental theater, you know, professor, you know, with like a like a cigarette holder and a bald hair, Andre Belgrader, <laughs> amazing. And he was like, you know, uh, the film actor should be like a crazy person or like a child, you know. <laughs> you you bring them from the trailer. You 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 stand them in front of the camera they do something crazy you give them a cookie and you break them you bring them back to the trailer you know?
0: <laughs> that was, so that was the extent of it yeah basically and then he was like
1: eh, you know think fish we're like what and he's like just think about just think about your favorite fish or when you're acting you know don't think about the just think about think fish like salmon oh or sea bass or you know think of an eel or eating fish or fish swimming
0: <laughs> Oh my God. Well, so I guess that begs the question, were you in your own mind, was there any reason for you to think at that point, like I want a career beyond the stage or were you just pretty singularly focused on, uh, would you have been happy and sort of not surprised if it had been theater for the, for the whole career?
1: No, no. I wanted to make movies. You know, I, 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 that was my first love was movies, like with my dad and that video camera and all the movies we'd watch. I got really into theater and the the tradition of theater. And I I really fell in love with like, you know, Burbage and the history of, you know, of, of Shakespeare and, you know, that lineage and, um, the transformative aspects of it. Um, uh that, that that the craft parts of it just were really really exciting to me because also those were the actors that I really admired had done those things as well so so I I I really loved the idea of being a more like of a classic actor you know I I, I was less interested in the stardom aspect of it um uh so so yeah for me it was always about trying to kind of balance both of those things
0: so were you kind of in some ways on your own, figuring out what screen acting actually would demand of you. I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: To a certain extent, you know, reading a lot, reading lots of books and experimenting myself with cameras and uh, making my own movies as well and trying stuff, watching stuff. You know, I I think at first all I did at my, I think my first couple years out, as far as uh, my screen acting education was just basically copying Pacino and dog day afternoon. <laughs> so I just, you know, I was like, what, you know, what element can I steal for this scene? What element can I steal for that scene? No, that was it. You know, um, I watched that movie more than any other movie, uh, ever. Mm-hmm. And that, that mm-hmm. was, that was basically my technique for the first few years. <laughs> uh, and then slowly, you know, just with getting more opportunities to do it, kind of seeing what worked, what didn't work, It was very, I think one of the hardest things at first was um, just the psychological difficulties of going home every day and being like, that was my one shot to get it, you know, Mm -hmm. which was such a different idea from theater where you're like, okay, what did I learn today? What can I bring back the next day? And I've learned that you do that, you just do it for the next scene or you do it for the next thing and you have to be okay, you know, you you have to be okay letting go way more. Uh, Mm -hmm. because yeah, that, that was your, you know, six, eight, 10, 12 hour chance at those scenes, that scene and, um, and then letting go. And so it feels like it wasn't until maybe in the last, you know, half decade that I've really been able to practice it much more freely, (laughs) but it took a while. It took a while to really get that muscle going where I could just
0: leave it on the field, you know? Well, so when, I mean, you you graduated in May 2005 and you hit the ground running in a way that I don't think very many people have, I guess, a lead in Shakespeare at the Public Theater, uh, two productions in three years. Um, I know you're saying like films kind of trickled in and we should just know for listeners that some of those earlier, you know, supporting parts that were where we might have seen you before we knew who you were, Robin Hood, W.E., Drive. Uh, the Born legacy. But I, of course, the moment where I think anyone who, who saw it remembers, you know, really waking up was, uh, waking up to you was Inside Lewin Davis. And so I just got to ask you, um, you know, the Cohens have talked about, they wrote this and thought maybe we've written a part that actually isn't castable because it asks so many different things of, of an actor. And we don't want I, a person who's already a household name and face. How did it, cross your radar and, and, uh, and I guess finally that, that music in your background came in useful.
1: Yeah. I, I had read about it, uh, that they were going to do this, um, uh, movie about the folk scene and there were and are my favorite filmmakers. And so, you know, uh, I just said to my reps at the time, like, get me in for this, whatever you can do, just get me in. I'll make a video, send a video, like whatever I can, please get this to, to someone that can make a decision to get me in, at least in the room. And uh, then I went off to go do a, a film in Pittsburgh and I was playing a lot of music and I was writing a lot at the time and, and I was playing a lot of open mics and not in preparation just because that's what I was, I, I didn't have a very big part in the film. And so just to pass the time, I would go do that. And when I got back to New York, they were really starting to get the ball rolling with auditions. And Scott Burns, who is a buddy of mine, who uh, was the first movie I did out of school, a movie called PU239. We stayed really close friends. We're still very good friends. And um, he knows T-Bone Burnett. And so I sent him, I, I, I recorded myself singing Hang Me. And I knew that it was about Dave Van Ronk. And so I, um, I learned how to play in that style. And I sang the song and I sent it to Scott and I said, can you get this to T-Bone? And he was able to get it to T-Bone and the casting director got it at the same time. And T-Bone was like, this is pretty good. I'm going to show it to the Coens. And, and then I found out that I was going to get to go in for the Coens, right? And so... Uh, at that point, I serendipitously, I was doing another really small, tiny little indie movie. And there was a guy that was basically playing like a drunk old guy at the bar. And in between takes, he picked up a guitar and started playing exactly in this style. And he was an amazing guitar player. Uh, and I said, hey, you're you're amazing. My name is Oscar. He's like, hey, my name is Eric. His name is Eric Franzen. And I was like, you know, I've got this audition coming up. Uh, it's kind of based on Dave Van Ronk. Have you ever heard Dave Dave Van Ronk? He's like, yeah, I played with Dave. <laughs> uh, and he's like, come, come, come over to my place on McDougal street. And, uh, and I'll, uh, I'll teach you how to, I'll give you guitar lessons. And so oh I started, God. I started hanging out with Eric a ton and playing guitar and smoking weed and drinking. And he would play me all these old records. And this was my, this was just prep to go to the audition. Uh, which was just incredible that it worked out that way. And so I learned like three or four songs, even though I just had to play the one song. And I went in there and um, it's funny, before I went for the Coens, uh, I remember that uh, I went in for the casting director. And at first, I just thought it was a direct Dave Van Ronk, um, you know, movie. And he was like a six foot three, (laughs) 300 pound Swede. And I was like, oh, my God, I don't know. How am I going to get in? And i not like, this is never going to happen. So I, I go in and I saw a picture of Rayleigh Montaigne. And, uh, and so I said to the casting director, I was like, oh, cool, man. So is he a reference? And they're like, oh, no, no, he just came in. He killed it. <laughs> and, uh, and I was like, oh my God, no way. Um, and, uh, and so anyway, I'm <laughs> not to call him out, you know, I'm sure he was, it was amazing. But, uh, yeah, anyway, yeah. anyway, just like, it just like all of my confidence just deflated in that moment. But luckily, <laughs> luckily I got to come in for the Coens and, and they were just so great and, and they laughed so much and, uh, and were just so generous. And I remember I was like, I think I got this thing. Like, I told a friend of mine, I was like, you know, they were laughing. And he's like, yeah, that's what they do. He's like, I, I've, I've auditioned for them three times. They were cracking up. I thought I had it, and I never heard anything again. And I was like, okay, all right, all right. Uh, but then I think it was a month later, I remember just like I was just screaming to the sky, like, give me this, please, God, give me this. And then a month later, Joel called me and, and said, hey, I'd love for you to, to uh, do this movie.
0: Do you think that you immediately appreciated how big of a difference it was going to make in your career. Yeah. Not that things weren't going well before, but like this was yeah, a yeah, game I, changer. I, well, right?
1: I'd never done a lead role in a movie, you know, uh, right, and this right. was the first one. And it was, what it was asking of me was just everything that, you know, I loved, like the tonally everything, you know, um, the, the, the. the the thing that I love about Dog Day Afternoon is like the, the humor mixed with the tragedy all happening simultaneously and, you know, a character that is, you know, in some elements pathetic, but also so there's like an innocence as well, you know, like all those things. And the fact that there was the, the, the musical aspect of it and, you know, just the, the, the relationship I have uh, had and have still with Joel and Ethan. Um, you know, it just uh, nothing, nothing I think will ever top that.
0: Well, and I, I just, want to quickly note, obviously you mentioned T-Bone Burnett, who I think was key with the, with the musical side of this, but in terms of the, the approach to the, the character, um, is it true that Buster Keaton was sort of the, the reference point? Cause I think that is fascinating. Just like, obviously for people who don't know this, you know, silent era, the stone face, you know, the guy that is unfazed by a house collapsing around him or anything that was your, that was your, point
1: of reference? That, yeah, that, early on, as I thought about it, I, I, I started watching Buster Keaton films, and I thought I thought that was just a great inspiration for me. Um, and I didn't tell Joel and Ethan about it. You know, I just, I didn't want it to be, I you know, I wasn't doing it so that people were like, hey, that's Buster Keaton kind of thing. It mm-hmm. just, for me, it was like a... The comedy of resilience, you know, and the fact that it's just this complete, this face that just doesn't really change, but has a melancholy to it. And so everything, you know, everything has to be in the body and in the juxtaposition. Uh, I just like that a lot. So early on, I, I decided, you know, like, what if I take away the one thing that I use more than anything, which is smiling, you know? I use smiling to let everyone know like, Hey, I mean, you no harm or, Hey, I'm joking when I say this, or, you know, I, I'm not a threat or I, I, you know, I want you to like me, you know, um, what happens if I take that away, but still want to communicate warmth and all these things. And so it's, it's how I met my wife. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I was dressed up as and Davis, like prepping. I, I, I've gotten the, uh, Mary's office let me get the costume beforehand. And I, I got the costume and, uh, And I was I I went went to a party and she was there and I started talking to her for a long time and I you know told her I was a musician and uh, and then at one point she said I sorry I can't are you flirting with me I can't really tell (laughs) Uh, and I was like yeah 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 I'm flirting with you you." oh that's Uh, hilarious so what I what I found quickly is like two things happen uh, when you take that thing away because you know you you you'll tell a joke but you don't laugh or smile to let someone know it's a joke and so either what happens is people get turned off really fast or. (laughs) Uh, intimacy happens really quickly, you know, because you right. feel like you're in on something that no one else is, you know? And so that was just a really fun thing. And I remember actually uh, quite a bit after I told Ethan, yeah, you know, I did this thing where like, I, I just tried not to ever smile. And he's like, oh yeah, that's what you did.
0: <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> well, I uh, I know that the, the singing, I don't know how confident or great you were before, but it was great enough by the end that I went to that... Uh, very lucky to go to that another day, another time concert that you did uh, where it's you in a lineup with like, you know, heavyweights and you held your own. That was
1: terrifying. Yeah, that was terrifying. (laughs) Oh man. I remember my hand froze up in the middle of that guitar solo for green, (laughs) for green Rocky Road. Uh, Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: No, but you were, you were great. I mean, I think that must've taken some balls. And then also, I guess you had worked with Carrie Mulligan before, right? On drive. Yeah. So that was not new, but. I had heard about and I don't I've got to just know if it's true or not. The scene, so again, you just to set it up, you spent the first 25 26 years of your life no no booze at all pretty much, right? So now you got to play this guy who's who's drinking quite a bit. How did it go the first time you had to basically the scene where you you get your ass kicked I think it's the first, like thrown, you, you walk out of the bar and you get beaten up. Right. And that was shot at the same time, I guess, as a bunch of other cutaways and something and stuff. W- w- do you know what I'm referring to? Did I tell this story somewhere? <laughs> I can't believe I actually told this. To, uh, <laughs> the, I forget where public, I heard it. Jeez. <laughs> um,
1: yeah, it was the first and last time I ever decided to like actually get drunk for a scene. You know, it was so <laughs> stupid. Um, okay I'll tell you the story um, <laughs> uh, it was it was it was a couple days before it had been my birthday and so for my birthday I'd gotten a bottle of basil Hayden uh, bourbon right and it was a Friday and all we were shooting all day was just exteriors uh, you know Lewin walking out of a subway Lewin walking into a subway like no dialogue really Lewin walking down the street and then the last thing we were supposed to shoot was just uh, Lewin getting kicked out of the gaslight, right? With like a line of people, not the actual scene inside, but the scene where I get kicked out. And so mm-hmm. throughout the day, I'd been kind of having little sips and I'm like, I know I gotta be drunk at the end of the day. You know, I'll get a, I'll get, I'll get buzzed. I'll get a little buzz. And I was just kind of drinking throughout the day. And then for the lunch, for lunch, since we were shooting around McDougal, my buddy Eric was like, Hey, I'm around. Why don't you come over for a spliff? And so I went to his house. We played some guitar. I had a little spliff. Uh, you know, went back. Um, Rehearsed the scene. Uh, you know, I kind of like did like a little trip into the thing. And I'm like, what do you guys think? And they're like, great, let's do it just like that. It's kind of a complicated crane shot. Cool. So I go back to my trailer. I, you know, I'm like, I'm gonna have just a little bit more. And then like, I, I realized it's like, wow, I just, I drank the whole bottle. (laughs) And I was like, I don't, I mean, I feel like tipsy. I don't feel drunk, but Jesus, I just drank a whole bottle of booze. All right. And then, uh, I remember I, I went out and we did the first take. And then Ethan came up to him and he goes, he goes, uh, all right, do it again. But like, do it like with six less drinks as if he's had <laughs> six less drinks. And that's the last clear thing I remember. Like, then I just remember like flashes of different things. And suddenly I'm in the middle of the street and I'm singing aggressively at the Cohens. And then like someone's <laughs> putting on my clothes. And then, and then I wake up and I'm in my bed at, at home and I'm like, oh shit, what happened? Then Joel calls me. And he's like, Hey, so I'm a hundred percent sure that it would have been better if you weren't sloshed on that thing. And I said, (laughs) and I said, no, man, I hear you. I know I didn't actually mean to do that. It was kind of an accident. You know, I was trying to drink a little bit, but I didn't realize how much I'd had to drink. And he said, Oh, okay. Thank God. And and, and I was like, yeah, yeah. I don't think this isn't like my process because we still had that scene to shoot at, at a later point. And he was afraid that I was like one of these guys that thought he needed to really be drunk, you know? And, uh, (laughs) And I was like, no, I just didn't realize how much I had had. And, and I was like, I'm so sorry if I messed it up. He's like, no, no, it's okay. Like to, to be honest, we didn't know that you actually were <laughs> drunk. Uh, it's just that, you know, usually we have such great communication and, and, you know, we would come up and tell you stuff and you'd say, okay. And then you wouldn't do any of it. <laughs> 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 and uh, he was like, it was imperfect. It was imperfect. Like a camera move is imperfect or like, uh, you know, the weather is imperfect. And I remember it. it's like what happened. The, the, the problem is like, <laughs> it's okay for like one take, but then I just right, didn't yeah. have the energy to keep pretending like it was the first time. After that, you know, so so it just looked like really bad acting.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and it so, all worked out. That's yeah, that's yeah. hilarious. Yeah, thank yeah. you for thank you for clarifying that. Yeah. Um, okay, so just uh, obviously that you've packed a, a ton into the eight years since. So I'm gonna I'm gonna not hit on everything and just keep it moving, but I, I have to ask you about a few of these as we make our way to this uh, incredible 2021 that you've had. So just, if you don't mind, let's go to a most violent year, which was the next very next year, J.C. Chandor, uh, who I had gotten to be friendly with on, on, uh, all is lost had invited me to come by the set that when you guys were mm. working on that. I don't think I, I don't think I bothered you to say hi, but I just, mm. it was cool to watch you at work as this guy who I guess, you know, let's heating oil salesman, bad eighties, uh, crime period in New York and almost like a Macbeth situation with you. And Jessica Chastain, who are obviously, you know, yeah. I guess it goes back to Juilliard and connects right through the present moment. Um, but in that one, after the fact, I heard you were channeling Marvin Gaye. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, yeah, I listened to a lot of Marvin Gaye at that time. Yeah, I am. Um, yeah, for me, you know, he was such a kind of a closed off dude that I for me, it was really important to find his kind of inner rhythm and uh, his his swagger. You know, and again, it's not something that I would ever expect anyone else to pick up on, but for me, just like have like an inner engine, like an inner sensuality to him. Uh, and I found that to be really helpful and it just put me in the zone. Yeah. And I, and I brought, I brought a bunch
0: of the music to JC and then he ended up putting uh inner city blues in the beginning. That's fantastic. And, and you, and that was, I guess, had you, you and Jessica had known each other at, at Juilliard, but had you ever actually worked to get acted together?
1: No. No, we'd never done anything okay. together. We just knew each other really, really well. And uh, yeah. and then she uh, really championed me for the role. And uh, I remember when I met uh, JC, it was at Telluride, and I uh, I was preparing to go shoot... I think I was preparing to go shoot Ex Machina around the time. So I, I had, like, I was a shaved head and, like, a huge beard. And, you know, I think he had a hard time <laughs> trying to picture a bell this in, clean cut. inside yeah, right. of that. But I was like, trust me, I, the hair can come off and the hair can grow back. And, uh, you know, yeah.
0: <laughs> well, so Ex Machina, as I mean, 2015 is one of the craziest years, uh, I would think, just yeah. in terms of how everything came out. Ex Machina, you're, it's almost like a, a Dr. Frankenstein hair. You've called it quote, one of my most treasured experiences, close quote. Why is that?
1: Uh, Alex Garland. I think just uh, the, re- the relationship that I cultivated with him, you know, also someone that's remained a really close friend of mine, just his mind is so incredible and the nature of the way that we worked on it. You know, I think it was the first time where a director, writer, and I worked so closely together uh, on something to make sure that every single angle of the way it was, uh, the way you look at it made sense and cohered, uh, that it was intellectually so rigorous and it needed to be. And, uh, especially, especially because the nature of the character, the game that he's playing so much had to be, uh, so precise as far as what the motivation is, what is he pretending to do? What does he actually want to do? What is he not sure of? You know, when is he losing control? When is he doing it on purpose? You know, what, what is he? Is he pretending to be a villain here? Is he not? You know, all, all those things uh, we had to be so rigorous about exploring. And it just was um, so uh, energizing um, creatively. It was a great movie. Yeah. And I loved shooting him in Norway. And it was just, yeah, it was amazing.
0: it's fantastic. Uh, That year also, you did something that I think you had actively avoided doing in the early part of your career and uh, have only returned to just now, which is television, I guess, uh, Mm. with Show Me a Hero. Um, And I think, you know, great performance as this as this mayor in New York, in uh, Yonkers, who's who's there at a time of heightened racial tensions. Mm. You end up winning a Globe. But I do think it did not necessarily convince you that TV was the place for you.
1: No, not, there wasn't a problem with the medium so much. It's just, to be honest, just the workload is so massive. And that, that was, that was a really tough one, you know, to try to keep all of that alive and in your mind and clear. And, uh, you know, it just, uh, and the limited series in particular, it's like this weird hybrid of movie and TV, and it's still such a, strange animal, you know, because it, it, there's no set rules to it. And so it's kind of hard to figure out, but the one thing that's for sure is just the workload is just massive. You know, you're doing so much, so, so much material in such short amount of time that it's in some ways it, it feels like it doesn't quite have the focus, you know, or just the time uh, that mm-hmm. film does. And, uh, and so I think that, that was just a, a challenge at the same time, there is also something that is kind of, um, interesting storytelling wise about long form narrative, you know, and I think there's still a lot to explore there, but, um, Mm -hmm. but I think, yeah, it was just the, just the amount of work,
0: uh, was a lot. I I bet. And then finally that year was the first of the three Star Wars, of course. And I, I guess it goes back to just a kind of a, a random call from JJ saying like, come to come to Paris, but you didn't really know what you were going there for? Yeah. Like, how was that, how was that uh, sold to you?
1: <laughs> Basically that JJ and Kathy wanted to sit with me. They'd like to fly me to Paris to talk to me about a role. Uh, would I be interested in going? Well, I said, of course, of course I would. Um, I remember I, st- I, I still have it somewhere too. Is a, uh, I, got, a, I <laughs> got this unknown voicemail and it was his voice that said, "Hey, Oscar, it's JJ. Listen, you don't got to come out to Paris. What are you gonna play, like a, an android or a robot? You don't need to do that. I'm just so <laughs> fancy now. I'm just so fancy now that I can just fly whoever I want over to anywhere I want to go." And then there was a pause. And there was a pause, and it was like. Hey Oscar, it's Albert Brooks. Just saying, hey. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. He really had well, me and- going because we, we had worked, we just worked on most of my entire <laughs> year together. But yeah, man, of course. It was, it was uh, so funny. But anyway, yeah. So I went out there and. Uh, and they talked to me and they're like, you know, he sets up the whole movie and then he dies spectacularly. And then I was like, oh, OK, yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a bummer because I feel like I've done that so much where like I set it up for the main <laughs> character and then I die spectacularly. Right. And then Kathy, to her credit, was like, yeah, you did that for us in the Bourne movie. Uh, <laughs> and I was like, yeah, and then, you know, JJ started thinking about it. And he's like, oh, I think I figured out a way for him to survive. And then, you know, the rest was history.
0: Now, was there any part of you, though, at that moment, I guess there's probably to some degree competing considerations on the one hand, like you had that the level of fame that comes with a Star Wars has got to be unlike anything else. Uh, And you were working and doing well, but it was not you were not somebody that I think probably was was uh, unable to go about your life. Um, prior to Star Wars. And then, but on the other hand, the idea that here a new generation is going to get to see a Star Wars where the the core trio is a Latino man, a black man and a white woman. Um, I guess, how did, how did you weigh these things as you're deciding whether or not to do this?
1: Honestly, at the time, I didn't weigh it that much. I just was like, it's Star Wars. It sounds fun. I love JJ. I think there's a cool character here. Who knows where it's going to go? But uh, why wouldn't, you know, it's like, why not? Why not? Why not? And, uh, yeah. And so I, I, it wasn't, it wasn't such a difficult thing to, to, to think about, you know, I just seemed like, of course, why wouldn't I? I love these movies. I've, they mean so much to me personally. So,
0: yeah. And within that, so that's three within five years. And in that same period was also your foray into X-Men, which I guess, you know, really prosthetics and all of that side of the business where I guess just having major name In indies and having mostly worked in indies, I think it's fair to say, what did you make of the giant big studio movie making experience with those, with those franchises? But I guess particularly with, with X-Men, it sounds like it was not.
1: The X-Men thing was, it was interesting because, um... I, you know, I, I, loved apocalypse from the comics and also the religious connotations. Like I grew up with like a real sense of the, of the apocalypse as well. And so I think I always was kind of like, uh, interested in that character, no sense of how they wanted to do it as far as like visually, obviously, you know, it's like, I, I assume there'd be some voice or it was going to be kind of like Gollum like, or what they ended up doing kind of with Thanos or some, some kind of CG version, um, and uh, and then I met with Simon Kinberg, and we like worked a bit on the script and tried to like add in some of the religious elements that I found interesting. And, you know, it it felt quite kind of collaborative. I saw some early drawings that looked really interesting as well, and wasn't sure how they were going to do it. But, you know, you just kind of have, have faith that these, everybody knows how to do it. It's going to be fine. Um, and then, you know, I, as it got closer, it was like, no, no, we, we want to do it all practically. And it's like, okay, well, cool. Let's see how we do that. Right. This guy's supposed to be like 12 feet tall and, you know, whatever. And, uh, massive and imposing. And, and, uh, and then, you know, slowly, I think I just, I just started getting more encased in stuff and more encased in stuff. And, you know, and then like the prosthetics, like the first time it took six hours and then, you know, uh, and I was like, oh man, this is really intense. And then they had to make a helmet inside of the prosthetics to like make the head bigger and to attach these things to. And, you know, and, uh, and, you know, I had had a supporting role in Star Wars, but I I, I wasn't necessarily in a place where I could, you know. I didn't have a ton of, uh, you know, say in exactly what I needed. I wanted this character to look like. So it, it was a bit of a leap of faith as well. Obviously, in retrospect, <laughs> it was a miserable time, you know, because it just was, I, I was so isolated, you know, and the, ironically, one of the reasons why I wanted to do it too was like, had some amazing actors. Like I love Fastbender and McAvoy and Jennifer Lawrence, and like these, you know, great, great actors, Evan Peters, you know, and, um, and Ty Sheridan, and, you know, all these actors that I, I think are great. And so to get to play with them and work with them and, um, And, uh, but yeah, that ended up being a a, a tough one for me because it was a character that I liked a lot, but, uh, it seemed like, you know, there was a bit of a breakdown with, with, um, my, my thoughts of what it could be. And then the actual practicality of like having to live in that stuff and how, Mm how challenging that was. Um, but again, come, came from a place, not of career calculation, but just of like, Hey, I love this character. Maybe there's something fun yeah. to do here, you know? Right. And, right. Uh, and so that's been a bit of a, of, um. Education as well, you know, being like, hey, you know, it's it is great to, to love things, you know, but sometimes it's OK to love things and you not necessarily be the thing that is in it. you
0: know, Right. Right. Uh, there right. could
1: be a separation. You know, it's like you spend so <laughs> much. I spent so many years of I mean, the majority of my time has been like somebody give me the shot. Give me the shot. I will just give it to me. You know, I'll, I, can, I can I can prove that I can do it. And a very small window of time with saying being able to say like no, I don't need to do that, you know that. So that still feels quite alien. So that's been a sure a, a thing
0: to learn. I ran into Jason Spire last week, who I believe has been your manager from pretty early on. Yeah, right? yeah, uh, we're, from... we're now
1: producing things together uh,
0: and producing, Yeah. Well, yeah,
1: yeah. So now we're 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 just producing uh, partners together. But yes, we, he did manage me for a long time as well.
0: Well, I I only bring it up because I said to him, you know, I'm going to be speaking with Oscar. I need, you know, I do my homework, but you got anything that you think I might not appreciate how interesting it is to bring it up or, or, you know, just, you know, that, and I think one of the things that he said was, was most impressive was how you handled a very tough period, I guess, right around, maybe just after X-Men Apocalypse, where within, a very compact period of time. You lost your mother, you have your first child, I believe. You go to work, four hour performances of Hamlet, dealing with uh, obviously a character who's grappling with the loss of a parent. Um, and that you were, people thought it was one of the great interpretations of that, which has been done a zillion times. And I guess I just wonder for you, it seemed like that may have been a transformative period for you. And so, to whatever degree you're comfortable talking about it, I'd just be curious how you think it, it changed you.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it changed me completely, you know, at, at a cellular level to, you know, lose a parent and then have a child in that short amount span of time. And, uh, yeah. And I think I was really fortunate that I had something like Hamlet to, to, poor, you know, uh, explore my grief publicly with, you know, I mean, grief used to be something that was expressed publicly. Um, and, you know, I think we have a, particularly in this country, have a very strange relationship with death and grief. It's uh, something that we like to not pay attention to so much as a culture. You know, because uh, there's there's nothing really aspirational about death, <laughs> and we're just like the country all about aspiration and winning. You know, right, right, so right. Uh, but we're all we're all going to lose at that, and uh, sometimes we don't like to, to to look at that. So it was it was, um, it was uh, an amazing thing to be able to do that. You know, I I don't know exactly how healthy that was. You know, I think there is a difference between you know grieving as a character and grieving as a human being. Um, so, so yeah, that was a, but it was a, it was a tough time. Um, I, 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 worked also too much that year, you know, I, I think, uh, that, that, distracted me a bit. And, uh, in retrospect, although the projects that I did, you know, I, I, I value them, but I, I think a smarter thing would have been to have taken some downtime. Um, but I got, you know, I kind of, I kind of got pushed a little bit into, into doing some stuff that I, I, I think was maybe not the healthiest thing.
0: Well, and I could be wrong with the timeline, but it does seem like probably based on when things were released, it was, you got into producing a film for the first time with with Operation Finale, uh, where you're playing guy who goes and leads the mission to get Eichmann and starred in that. Um, That year also, well, coming out in 2018, so this must have been in probably 2017, Gauguin and... uh, first novel at Eternity's Gate I guess it was all that happening at the around the same time I
1: mean what I, I mean it was kind of crazy cuz it's like I I and my mom passed uh got married Eugene was born I did life itself I did Hamlet I went and did Operation Finale I flew to do Gogan uh that was all the same year you know Oh my god And so it was just uh it was just too much at the end of that Not I really so. I really got burnt out
0: yeah 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 Well I hope that this was not the result of another period of burnout, but 2021, let's just know as we come to the present, the car counter, Dune and scenes from a marriage where you go back and do another. You were talking about the challenges of limited series. I mean, Jesus, five hours, right, for that, um, as well as as you know, these parts with these others, just to quickly hit on them uh, and and great work in each of them. Amazingly, uh, uh, especially the card counter. Let's talk about it's Paul Schrader, who I think had expressed an interest in working with you since you got out of Juilliard, uh, finally happens. How was this character, who's fairly eccentric, uh, explained to you?
1: You know, in, in just that enigmatic Paul Schrader kind of way, you know, it's, this is a, you know, man alone in his room. It's one of his, you know, in a series of of portraits that he's, that he's done. And I just was thrilled to be able to add to that series of portraits. Uh, It's in the script, to be honest, you know, he serves up everything that I want uh, as an actor to experience, which is, you know, uh, the subconscious at work. And, uh, it, it just ignites my curiosity in such a such a spectacular way. You know, I, I went back to mask work. I went back to Juilliard to work on that because I felt similarly. This is a guy. You know, Paul talks about how this is a man wearing a mask, and his mask is his, his occupation. But I thought to myself, why not take that literally? What is it like to wear a mask? This is someone that works with his hands and cards. And what if I take that aspect of him away because he's hiding, and he's in this purgatory, um, and he's kind of created this shell. And so I worked a lot on the, on the physical transformation that occurs. Um, and, and let that kind of be my, my guide of where he's at. Um, you know, worked on penmanship because I knew he, he, you know, he's a guy that works, uses his journal and I wanted to feel someone that's very controlled. So I, you know, I, I, I got, I took some courses on, um, cursive writing again, which I hadn't done wow. since like grade school and, uh, wow. and, and I've kept it up since. I just find it quite meditative. Yeah. Um, And, uh, you know, worked with cardists, cardistry experts to just really feel like I knew my way around, around a a deck of cards. Um, It just, it it never ended. There was tons of things that I just went down um, and, and really loved constructing this character that is just has this kind of volcanic nature inside of him,
0: but that's covered in this really icy exterior. Well, and that's, that's what I just wanted to follow up and ask you about is like, there, are, I can imagine that there are plenty of people who would be scared of the amount of moments with with without dialogue, where it's just you thinking on camera. Is that something that you you actually? I kind of get the sense you might relish those moments. Yeah, Is that
1: I love that again say? because it, it does. It gives a chance for the the subtext, the, the the subconscious to really work, and it's fully expressive. It's not communicative. You're not trying to communicate a specific idea. You know, uh, it feels. Feels more like music, and I think that's generally my approach. Is I, I, I look for the the music in the characters, and and I try to even score the the journey of that character. You know,
0: I got to ask, what did you, what was your take on why he's wrapping up all these shitty motel rooms in his in his cloths? I, I what did you think that was about?
1: I think there's a few things. You know, I think. Narratively, what it does is it just creates so much tension because you don't know what he's up to and you fear, you know, the, what you see, the, the my first impression was that, oh, he's going to do something horrible. He's going to murder somebody in here. And I, I think it's, it's a way to control. It's just, it's just about meditative control, you know, and take away, you know, he, he it's his self-punishment, you know, it's like a purgatory. He's given himself a purgatorial existence And so he doesn't want change. He doesn't even want like one different shitty lamp versus the last hotel's shitty lamp. He just wants it all to be the same. So there's no, and and similarly like a casino, you know, the casinos are all kind of the same inside too, you know? So it's just about like just living in this suspended
0: state. Well, and I guess that's maybe why there's that. It's such a, a breathtaking moment at the Missouri or, uh, yeah, Missouri Botanical Gardens where it's all lit up that yeah. it looks almost like an animated movie but I guess for him that's really stepping outside of his comfort zone with yeah, you see, with Lillander, Yeah, right?
1: you see the the shell kind of start to break a bit and the the possibility of some sense of redemption um, mm-hmm. starting to occur. Yeah.
0: Mm. So just uh briefly with Dune, you you were you a fan of the of the written material of a prior version of it because it does sound like you actually went to bat for yourself to 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 denis villeneuve to play this part
1: yeah i wrote to him when i heard it was you know was uh he was doing it and i said hey i'm a big fan of the book just let you know and he said oh interesting okay good to know <laughs> and then you know years later he, he sent me the script so i i yes i was familiar with it i'd read the book uh, i i wasn't sure Like what part, you know? Obviously, I didn't know what the script was going to be like, and and funny enough, when he sent it to me, he wasn't sure what part exactly, you know. I think he had a sense, but you know, then I I looked at it and it just was clear that that was the that was a role for me.
0: And then finally, with with scenes from a marriage, uh, I again back to limited series, back with Jessica, and uh, you know, I it's it's frustrating for me. I can't imagine how frustrating it is for you that so much is. All the questions, uh, a lot of the questions seem to be about arm sniffing or nudity, but I just want to ask you, <laughs> I just want to ask you about, um, you know, just the the exercise of basically being in a in a limited number of locations with one other actor who obviously you have a very special relationship with. But for that amount of time, has there ever been anything else in your career not on the stage that was even close to that
1: no 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 that's yeah it felt like that that's what made it feel like stage you know it felt like we were doing a play um, at the same time it had the intimacy of film and it had the episodic nature of TV it was like such a weird combo of all those things and wholly unique and special because
0: of it yeah. So just finally uh what's do you have anything specific on the on the bucket list? I know you've got a lot of exciting upcoming stuff from Marvel to you know some other smaller scale projects that I've been hearing about. I just curious what excites you 8 years after Lou and Davis sort mm. of changed the changed the scene.
1: Yeah, you know I I I don't know. I don't know. It's um it's kind of vague uh what hits you sometimes and what doesn't. I think that I feel like I'm getting closer to to really feeling the confidence to, to, to helm something myself, you know? Oh, great. Yeah. Wow. To to, to direct something at some point, you know, I, I know it's always kind of been there and it'll have to be a story that speaks to me in such a compelling way that I feel like I have to, but, um, I, I feel more confident lately that that's something that's going to happen.
0: Awesome. Well, I, I am such a fan. I think you do it's never boring. It's always, uh, there's always something interesting, uh, in, in what you do. And I, I just really appreciate you doing this. So thanks a lot. I appreciate that, Scott. Yeah. Good to talk to you, man. Thanks very much for tuning in to awards chatter.